Good morning. Christ is risen. So before I begin, I'm going to put a kind of warning label on what I'm going to say this morning. This doesn't count against my sermon time, right? This is, this is all prelude. We, many of you will, like, like I did, will have grown up in churches with Sunday school. Let me see your hands if, you, if you've been to Sunday school, right? So the majority of us have been in Sunday school. And one of the blessings of growing up in church and growing up in a church with a Sunday school is that you get exposed to a lot of the stories in Scripture. You get a lot of the stories like Noah and the Ark and Jonah and the Whale and David and Goliath. But that blessing has an, an underbelly. And the underbelly is that we get those stories as children told to us by people who are very sensitive to the fact that we're children. In a culture that likes to tell stories to children in ways that are always gleeful and bright and uplifting. And the fact of the matter is that scripture is full of stories that are anything but gleeful and bright and uplifting. Including stories like the story of David and Goliath, the story of Noah and the ark, and the story that I want to share with you this morning, which is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Unfortunately, many of us only hear those stories as children. And so even though we, we leave Sunday school and we enter into adult life and we face an adult world, many of us carry with us only childish readings of stories that have been stripped of their real power to help us come to terms with what's really going on in the world as we know it as adults, in the brokenness of our lives. So what I want to do this morning is offer a reading, and it's just that, it's just one reading of the story of Abraham and Isaac that you probably didn't hear in Sunday school. And I want, I want to qualify this in a couple of ways to save my skin. I don't, I don't want to die today for this sermon. I believe in it, but I don't want to die for it. It is a reading. There are other ways to read this story. Part of the genius of, of the way Scripture tells stories is that it invites multiple readings. You remember... Jesus asks one of his accusers, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read it? Because the way scripture is written, and I think this is in God's wisdom, it's written so that it can be read different ways because it tells us what's in our hearts. The way we read a story says something about us. If you read the prodigal son story and you see yourself as the father, that tells you something about yourself, right? Because most of us aren't the father most of the time. Most of us are either the prodigal son or the elder brother. And in our best days, maybe we're like the servant. But very rarely are we like the father. So if we always identify with the hero of the story, that tells us a little bit something about ourselves, right? And so scripture is, I think, by God's wisdom, designed to, to read us, to tell us what's in our hearts when we hear these stories, right? So the story of Abraham and Isaac is no different. It, it can be read many ways, and the way we read it says something about us. And the way I'm going to read it this morning is a way I came to read it in, in my own struggle with, with my experience in the church. So I, I've hopefully, I hope I haven't overqualified, but I've qualified this to say there are other ways to read this story. I'm offering you one that I think applies to something very specific. Is that clear? All right, let's say a quick prayer and we'll jump into it. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for how you've opened up this space and time. You've made yourself present to us so we can be with each other and be with you. God, I pray that our worship is pleasing to you, and that in this worship we're being shaped to be like you, and that in this moment, as we hear the word, we will hear you speak, and we will yield to it. 
We pray this with Christ and by the Spirit. Amen. Malachi, the last book of our Old Testament, the Old Testament as we have it, ends with a promise. And the promise is that at the end of, of time, at the end of the age, God will send the prophet who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the hearts of the sons and the hearts of the sons to the hearts of the fathers. But that promise points to the fact that in this world, in the brokenness of this world, these relationships of fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, of parents and children, often do sour. They often are estranged from one another. And that's true of flesh and blood natural relationships and of spiritual churchly relationships. And what I want to talk to you about this morning just for a little bit is the ways in which God is working to return the hearts of spiritual fathers and mothers to the hearts of spiritual daughters and sons. We like to think of the church as a place of healing. And it is. It's a place in which all those who've been broken by the sinfulness in the world can come and and be restored and be renewed, be reinvigorated with the life God means for us. But if you've lived in the church more than a few days, you know that the church is also a place in which we are broken. It's not as if all of the breaking and all of the betrayal and all of the wounding happens out there and all of the healing happens in here. If you live in the church, you live with people. If you live with people, you suffer. You suffer wounds, right? Like the philosopher says, hell is other people, right? That's not a very Christian claim, but it is a claim that bears on how we experience one another, right? You live with people, you hurt. You hurt them, they hurt you. One way of thinking about it is like this. All of us at times are like David to other people's Saul. They're throwing javelins at us while we're trying to care for them. We're there playing the harp, singing, trying to soothe their pain, and they're trying to nail us to the wall. But the truth of the matter is we are also always Saul to someone else's David. Whether you realize it or not, there is someone praying for God to deliver them from you. (laughs) There is. Someone somewhere is asking God to intervene to save them from you. Just like you're praying for God to save you from someone else. That's part of what it means to be the broken people we are in the world as it's fallen. In this time before Jesus comes. And so in the church, we hurt one another and we are hurt by one another. And it is especially painful when we're hurt, not just by our brothers and sisters in the faith, but by our mothers and fathers in the faith, by the people who are responsible to carry us into the presence of God and to represent God to us rightly. When they hurt us in some way, the wound is deeper. It's, it's harder to heal. And we carry it with us, I think, much longer than the wounds that just come from our brothers and sisters. And, and I, want, I want to make clear here that, that everybody's story is different. Right? Not all stories of, of, of woundedness in the church are the same. Some people are wounded in the church by people who, frankly, grossly misrepresent God. They don't know the Lord, and for whatever reason, like wolves among sheep, they found a place in ministry, but they are wreaking havoc all around them, and they're doing it either from bad motives or sheer ignorance, but at the end of the day, they're just misrepresenting God at every turn. And there are some of us who've been wounded by those kinds of people, who just have been subjected to wolves. But most of us will have been wounded by people who had good motives and had good intentions and did many good things, and while they were representing God rightly in some ways, they were misrepresenting God in other ways. And that's much harder to negotiate. When you can come to recognize a wolf, 
you can, you can push that aside. You can recognize that this wound comes from someone who was taking God's name in vain. But when you come to terms with the fact that there are some people who, while they're taking care of you with the left hand, are also hurting you with the right hand, and they don't mean to be, and yet they are anyway, it's very difficult to know how, at least for me, to know how to come to terms with all that. And the fact of the matter is, many of us have wounds from those kinds of relationships. From people who wanted to speak rightly of the Lord, and in some ways did speak rightly of the Lord, but in the midst of that also spoke wrongly of the Lord. And in all the ways that they meant to do it well, there was this underside that subverted some of what they wanted to do. And again, that's part of the tragic nature of living in this world before all things have been put right. And some of it, I hate to say, is just unavoidable. There is fallout for the decisions that we make. Let me give you one kind of personal example. I, of course, was born in Oklahoma, raised in Oklahoma, except for a few months where my wife and I worked at a church in California. I've lived in Oklahoma all of my life. My parents live here. Her parents live here. And the church that we planted in Oklahoma City was here. But when we moved and took the job in Tennessee, that move, which we believed to be what the Lord wanted for us, had fallout. And part of the fallout was that meant me taking my children and my wife away from grandparents and away from all of those family and friendship connections that we had made over the course of our lives. Now, I believe it's what I was supposed to do, but there's still a cost to that. And I see that reflected mostly in my oldest child, in my daughter, who to this day speaks of Oklahoma as home. Now, if I had stayed, if I had said, we're not leaving these relationships, there would have been cost. Because I believe the Lord was calling us to go to Tennessee. But under the conditions of this world, even when we're following the Lord rightly, there is a cost, a fallout that's unavoidable. That's part of what it means to kind of come to terms with the brokenness of the world. Let me show you one more contrast and then we'll read the story of Abraham. Some people, of course, they don't suffer wounds in the church because they grow up outside the church. They're like Gideon. Do you remember Gideon is, is threshing wheat and threshing floor and the angel appears to him and says, Gideon, you, you mighty man of war, God is with you. And Gideon kind of smirks and says, God is with us? I haven't seen much evidence of that. Right? Where, where is the God of our fathers? I, where are the miracles I've heard people talk about? Right? So Gideon suffers from the faithlessness of his fathers. They hadn't known the Lord or tried to make the Lord known. They worshipped idols, and Gideon suffered the wounds that come from that kind of faithlessness. But what we're going to read in the story of Isaac is a man who suffers the wounds that come from faithfulness. And those are entirely different wounds. And I think in some ways they're wounds that, that are deeper and they're harder to heal. So with all that prefacing, let's come to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. Abraham planted a tree, a tamarisk tree, in Beersheba, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham resided as an alien many days in the land of the Philistines. So the opening scene of this story is Abraham planting a tree, calling on the name of God. After these things, God tests Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and Abraham responds, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. 
Now, as people who've been shaped by the faith, people who've read scripture, we are put off balance by this for at at least three reasons. First, the text says that God tested Abraham. And yet James tells us that God tests no one. Let no one say when he is tempted that he is tempted of God, for God tempts no one. Now, of course, in English, we make this distinction between tempting and testing. We say God doesn't tempt anyone, but he tests us, which is very comforting until you think about it. It really is helpful until you take a moment and reflect on what is the difference really? How do I tell the difference between a temptation and a test? And of course, in Hebrew and Greek, there is no distinction between tempting and test. It's the same word, which is why the King James translates this passage by saying, God tempted Abraham. Same word. But even if you hold to this distinction of terms between tempting and testing, what's the difference really? If God puts you in a position in which you have a choice to make, and if you make the wrong choice, you fall into sin and come under the judgment of God, how is that any different from tempting you? That's disturbing. When the text plainly says, God doesn't do that. Secondly, it's strange, it's, it's, it's off balance, that he does it now. I mean, if you've read the story of Abraham, you understand we're at the end of the story of Abraham. Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of the land of his fathers and says, I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. Through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. It would make more sense if God were to test Abraham before that. Before he calls Abraham to be the seed through which he's going to bless all nations, maybe God should test him then. If God really doesn't know what kind of character Abraham has, if he really doesn't know if Abraham is going to be faithful, maybe you should test him before you recruit him to be the one through whom all people are going to be blessed. But God doesn't test him then. In fact, God says then, I know Abraham. So he knew him before he called him. And yet here at the end of Abraham's story, he's saying, I need to test you to see what's really in your heart. That's odd. But what's more than just odd or off-putting or strange is the horror of what God asks him to do. So it's not just that God tests Abraham and we don't think God does that, or that God asks him at this point in his life, which seems a strange time, he asks him to kill his son. And we know God is not a God who honors child sacrifice. In fact, one of the things we know God hates is idol worship that leads to offering your children. God hates that. I mean, think about the way Jesus interacted with children. That's what God is like. So what is this? Why would God ask this of Abraham to take his only son? Perhaps you've seen in the news over the last few days the story of the United Methodist elder in, I think it was Allen, Texas, who, in an act of protest, lit himself on fire in the Walmart parking lot. Have you seen this? This happened in early June. It's only now becoming national news because his family has released the, his journals and letters that he wrote about what he was doing. Initially, when it was reported, it was reported as a kind of suicide, someone who was mentally unstable, as, as a kind of tragedy. And his family, for the last few weeks, has been struggling with whether or not to share with the world what, in fact, he thought he was doing. Because he had been planning to do this for years and would, had never told anyone. Apparently not anyone at all, certainly no one in his family. But he'd been keeping journals about 
what it was he intended to do. And he believed, he writes in these notes that he left for his family, that he was called by God to end his life in this way. That this was his destiny. That's the word he used. And he said, I'm not sick. I'm not depressed. I'm not dissatisfied with my family. I'm not losing faith in God. This is my calling. Now I want you to think about what it would be like to be his children. To be people who've been raised in church, as they have been, under his pastoral care, and then for his life to end this way, and for his last word to them to be, I'm taking my own life in this way because this is what God wants for me. And that pales in comparison to what Isaac is asked to bear. Because it's not that Abraham offers himself as a burnt offering. He's going to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. What are we to make of this? And notice Abraham, verse 3, Abraham rises up early in the morning, saddles his donkey, takes two servants with him and Isaac, cuts the wood for the burnt offering, and sets out. Now again, as people who know the story of Abraham, we're puzzled because Abraham is an arguer. God says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and what does Abraham do? God, you're the judge of all the world, and you don't know what's right from what's wrong? For 50 will you spare? For 45 will you spare? So Abraham is willing to argue with God over Sodom, but not over his own son. He argues with God over Ishmael. Remember? Sarah says that Ishmael and Hagar must be sent away. And Abraham, in prayer, says to God, let Ishmael be my heir. God says, no, I'm going to give you a son. So Abraham is is willing to argue with God, but here in the moment where you would expect him to be most argumentative, to be most resistant to what God wants, he gets up early in the morning, cuts the wood, and sits out with the servants. And notice, the text doesn't say anything about him speaking to Sarah. Can you imagine that conversation? So he sets out early in the morning, and in my midrash, he sets out early in the morning mostly because he wants to get out before Sarah wakes up. On the third day, Abraham looks up and sees the place far away. And Kierkegaard and other interpreters have talked about what must those three days have been like for Abraham. Isaac, of course, has no idea what's coming. The servants have no idea what's coming, and they're servants. But Abraham knows. At least he's afraid of what's coming. And for three days, he rides with that in his heart. And then he, on the third day, sees the place. And so he says to the servants, stay here with the donkey. He doesn't want them to see what's about to happen. You stay here. We'll go over there. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now, there are lots of ways to read what he says here. We will come back to you. Is he just lying to the servants? Is this perhaps, and this is the way I want to read it, is it perhaps his way of of voicing hope? I don't know how God is going to do it, but somehow... I'm going to take my son over there and kill him, but then we are coming back. This is the way Hebrews reads it. And Hebrews 11 says that even though Abraham offered Isaac, he believed that God was able to raise the dead. Right? So perhaps what Abraham is saying to the servants is, I don't know how God is going to do it, but we're going to go over there, and then we're going to come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he, he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Mark that language. The two of them walked on together. 
Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Notice, Abraham responds just as quickly and attentively to his son as he had to God. Responds in the same way. Here I am. Which I think accentuates the agony in Abraham's heart. Like he is attending to Isaac. If, if you see some of the paintings, say Rembrandt's paintings, of Abraham killing Isaac, Abraham is standing over Isaac and his eyes are on heaven. And, and many commenters who are disturbed by this story will talk about how Abraham doesn't see Isaac, he only sees God. He's forgotten Isaac. But this text shows that he's not forgotten Isaac. Here I am, son. He's attentive to the, to the question. And Isaac asks, I see the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide. Now again, there are lots of ways to read what Abraham says. Maybe Abraham knows God has provided and you are the lamb. Or maybe again, this is Abraham's hope against hope that somehow God is going to intervene. That in spite of what it seems that God has asked me to do, God is going to do something I don't see yet to save me from this. Which, at the end of the day, isn't that at the heart of all of our faith? That we hope whatever it is God's asked us to do, God is doing more than we see so that we aren't going to destroy ourselves and others? Somehow God will provide. So the two of them, again we're told, walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. And again, notice the way the story is being told. We're not getting any glimpse into their hearts, their feelings, their thoughts their conversation. We just get a bare description of the act. Abraham builds an altar, lays the wood in order, binds his son Isaac, and lays him on the altar. And I think it's because we're supposed to supply the feeling and the thoughts and the responses. What must it have been like in that moment when Isaac realizes the reason there's no lamb is that I'm the sacrifice? When this man he's known as father starts to wrap the cords around him. What must they have said to each other? What would that have been like? What must that have been like? And Abraham lays him on the altar on top of the wood. And Isaac has been through this sacrificial practice enough to know what's coming. And Abraham reaches his hand, takes the knife to kill his son. And the angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for, no, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And then God and Abraham have this conversation which God makes a promise in God's own name to bless Abraham and to make his name great. And if we stop the story there, as we always do in Sunday school, it seems like a story of joy. A story of which God comes through and saves Abraham from what it is that he seemingly asked Abraham to do. And we can all go away cheered and enjoy the rest of our week. But the story doesn't stop there. Because in verse 19 we're told, And Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. Now, in the run-up to the moment of the sacrifice, the storyteller kept telling us that Abraham and Isaac went together 
The two of them went on together. The two of them walked on together. They carried the wood and the fire and the knife. But when Abraham leaves the altar, he leaves alone. And commenters, Jewish and Christian, have wondered, where does Isaac go? What happens to Isaac? We see him on the altar, and then we don't hear from him again. And in fact, never again in Abraham's life do Isaac and Abraham speak. The last exchange they had was Abraham standing over him with the knife. Some commentators say that God caught Isaac up into heaven to give him a kind of respite and reward for what he had endured. He deserved it. If that's what happened, he deserved it. Others say he fled into the wilderness to pray. That would make sense too. As a friend of mine says, he might not have been angry with his father, but I doubt he went camping with his father any time after that. <laughs> but there is a line of reading from both Jewish and Christian interpreters that I, that I want to draw attention to, and that is the idea that he flees from the mountain in confusion and anger. That Isaac flees not to prayer, and he's not caught up into heaven. He flees into the wilderness in despair. Who is this? And who is this God? Who is my father? And who is the God of my father that this could happen? That's not as cheerful. I'm pretty sure that's not in the VeggieTales movie. <laughs> I haven't seen the VeggieTales version, but I'm pretty sure that's not there. Isaac disappears, and that's not the end of it. Abraham returns to Beersheba, we're told, and then the next scene of the story, Genesis 23, is the story of Sarah dying. Sarah lived 127 years. That was the length of her life, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arva, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Now again, if we read uncarefully, we won't see what the storyteller is saying to us. But he's telling us, subtly, but telling us, that Sarah dies in another place from where Abraham is living. Abraham is living in Beersheba. The storyteller says this to us over and over again. He lives in Beersheba. And when he left Beersheba with Isaac, she was there. But when she dies, she dies in Hebron. And Abraham goes to Hebron to mourn her death. And again, we don't know why she dies in another place. Why doesn't she die in Beersheba, in the tents where Abraham lives? And so Jewish and Christian commentators and interpreters have to speculate. What happened to Sarah? And some of them say, the moment she woke up and realized that Abraham and Isaac were gone, she left. She had had enough. She had forsaken her family. She had forsaken her homeland to follow this man, Abraham, who's wandering around in this land following this God who speaks to him. She had seen him betray her. Remember, Abraham lies and says, she's not my wife, she's my sister, and gives her to the Pharaoh. She's been with Abraham through it all. And this is the proverbial last straw. I'm, I'm not taking anymore. Other commentators say, she stayed until Abraham returned without Isaac. And then when Abraham explained what had happened, she left. We don't know why she left. All we know is she dies in another place. And Abraham goes and mourns for her. And, and, and I want you to see this. Abraham is the father of faith. He's 
living faithfully. And what's coming from his faithfulness is the brokenness of his family. He's already sent Ishmael away, his first son. And stunningly, Abraham will have other children after Isaac. And you know what he does with them? He sends all of them away. Every child Abraham has, he sends them away. This is the father of faith. That's not how the story is supposed to go. But as I said at the beginning, there's something about the brokenness of this world that even when people are being as faithful as they know how to be, there is fallout. There is brokenness that results. And so Abraham says, as he's dying, he says to his servant, go and find a wife for my son. And again, if you pay attention, you'll realize that he has to say this to the servant because he can't say it to Isaac. Isaac isn't there. So Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. Of course, that's the story of Rebekah. The servant finds this beautiful, wise, humble, caring woman and brings her to Isaac. And at the end of chapter 24, we get this story of Rebekah and Isaac. Isaac had settled in the Negev, we're told, and he's out in the evening walking in the field. And he looks up and he sees camels coming. Rebekah looks up. By the way, that's the same phrase that's used several times in the, the previous chapter in which it talks about Abraham looking up and seeing the place. She looks up and she sees Isaac. And she leaps from the camel, saying to the servant, Who is this man? And he says, It's, it's my master. She takes her veil. She covers herself. The servant explains to Isaac everything that's happened. And then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent. Where's Isaac been living? In his mother's tent. And the text says, He loved her, she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is a man in deep, deep anguish. He's estranged from his father, living in the tent of his dead mother, who died in estrangement from her husband, his father. And Rebecca begins the process of healing. And, and let me say, say this, let me make this application. That's what it means to be the church. That's part of what it means to be the church. Part of what it means for sanctuary to be the church is for us to see the Isaacs among us and comfort them. To identify the people sitting around us week to week who have been wounded by people who were trying to be faithful. Recognize their anguish and their brokenness and their woundedness and bind those wounds. And do everything we can to comfort them. There are people here this morning who are living in their mother's tent, if you get what I mean. We have to see that. We have to notice that. That's part of what we have, we have to do. Isaac is comforted after his mother's death. And then shortly after this, Abraham dies. And Isaac and Ishmael reunite at their father's grave. And one of the Jewish interpreters, one of the rabbis, says that they danced at his grave. And said to each other, here is the man who cast us both away. That's not how we like to think of the father of faith. That the one who leaves all to follow the voice of God and in the end dies alone without his wife or without any of his children. And his children stand at his grave and say, this is the man who cast us both away. 
We don't know what they said. The text, the, the biblical text doesn't tell us. But it does say that they, are uni- they reunite at his grave. And then Isaac becomes the patriarch. He is the one upon whom the promise rests. And God says to Isaac, I will bless you and I will make your name great, just as I did your father Abraham. And then Isaac begins to live the same story Abraham had lived. And if you read the story closely, it's quasi-comical because you start to realize Isaac is reliving Abraham's life. You remember the story I mentioned a moment ago. Abraham comes into Egypt. The Pharaoh sees how beautiful Sarah is. Abraham says, she's not my wife. She's my sister. You can have her. And guess what happens with Isaac and Rebekah? They wander into Egypt. The Pharaoh sees she's beautiful. The Pharaoh says, I would like to have her as a wife. And Isaac says, you can have her. She's not my wife. She's my sister. And of course, when he has children, his family begins to come apart. Jacob and Esau are at war from the womb. And he and Rebekah are divided about how to care for those children. So he's the patriarch, and his family is every bit as broken as the family in which he had grown up. And then he wanders through the same spaces. The text says that he's going and redigging the wells that Abraham had dug and giving them the same names that Abraham had given them. And you get this pattern that develops. He will go to an area dig up a well that Abraham had dug that had been filled, renames it, and then the people of the land will fight him for it, and so he moves on to the next well, redigs that well, gives it the same name Abraham had had given it, and people come and fight him for it. And so he leaves that well and goes to the... And you you see this picture of a man who's being driven by woundedness. A man who's deeply unsettled, who's just lighting from place to place to place. And then we're told that he finally comes to a place and digs a well, verse 22, and no one fights him for it. And he names it Rehoboth, which means effectively, now the Lord has made room for us. We shall be fruitful in the land. And it seems like he's saying, now I'm at home. Now I find rest. And then the very next verse says, from there he went up to Beersheba. God gave him rest. God gave him room. But the wound in him was still bleeding. And the root of his restlessness would not let him stay. And he goes to Beersheba. He goes to the place where he was that morning when his father woke him up and said, we have to make a sacrifice. It's the first time he's been there. And you can imagine what it must be like to walk onto that space, to see the tree his father planted. And to remember when their tents were here and they were a family. When the last time he saw his father, the last time he saw his father and mother together, before that fateful morning that they set out for the mountains. And he comes there. And there, the text says, that very night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do you think that sounded like good news? It's his father, Abraham, who's wounded him. It's the way that his father has represented God to him that is the cause of this deep unrest in him. And God appears to him, and the first thing God says is, I am the God of your father. But then God says, do not be afraid. 
Do not be afraid. Now, here's, here's what I want to say to you. Many of you are like Isaac. And you have a story in which someone like Abraham wounded you. They were trying to be faithful. They were trying to follow the voice of God. They were trying to do what they understood to be right. And in the process, they left you confused, alienated, estranged, afraid, unsettled. And the Lord says to you, I was their God. I am their God. Don't be afraid. Because here's the thing. When he says he's the God of your fathers, there, there are at least two things he's affirming. One is, he was with them. He was with them. And whether or not that seems like good news at first, it it becomes good news the moment that you realize that someday you're going to be Abraham to someone else's Isaac. It's one thing when I look back on my past as a child and my past as a young man and think about the people who were Abraham to me and wounded me, but the moment I start realizing that now I'm a father and I've been a pastor and I'm a teacher and I'm encountering Isaac every day. And no matter how good my intentions are, and no matter how good my motives are, and no matter how careful I am, I am going to wound my children and my students and the people I'm called to care for. And the good news is, if God was with the fathers who wounded me, he's with me, and he will be with my children. I can rest in that. And the other, the other promise that's there is that he's saying, I am the God of your fathers. I'm not your father. I am the God of your father. And I am more than what your father could represent me to be. I was with your father. I loved your father. And your father loved me. But I'm more. I'm better. I'm truer. I'm more faithful. I'm more loving. I'm more just than your father could ever communicate to you. And again, we can rest in that. Because that means that God is better than the representation we've been given of God. And that means we don't have to say, if God has been misrepresented to us, that's all that God is. God is more than what you've been told God is. And God is more than what you can tell others God is. That's good news. We don't have the pressure of getting it exactly right. If we do not get it right, and we won't all get it right, God is more than our descriptions of God and our representations of God. He was for our fathers, and he will be for us. Do not be afraid. And the truth is, you'll never be able to live in your present or live into the future until you come to terms with the past and the way you've been hurt by people in the name of God in your past. And what God says is not distance yourself from that. Own it. You are Abraham's son. Do not be afraid, for I am with you, and I will bless you and make your offspring numerous for my servant Abraham's sake. And notice what Isaac does. He builds an altar there. And the way I picture this is that he goes out to that tree, the tree that we saw in the first scene of this story, where Abraham planted it and then began to pray. And under that tree, He builds an altar and says, I may not like everything that my father Abraham said and did, but I belong to my father Abraham and I belong to the God of my father Abraham and I will build an altar here. And God redeems that past for him. And he will for you. 
and he will for me. And we can trust that. We do not have to be afraid. Amen. Pastor Brent. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.